0: A retreat such as this is just like our lives. Before you know it, it's over. And it eventually dawns on people that in a retreat and also in their lives, they've got to make every moment count. We only have that one moment, nothing else. It's also exactly like our lives because there are ups and downs. Sometimes it goes really well and one feels as if one is sitting on the top of the world. And then another next day comes around and it all looks like dukkha again. Although nothing has really changed. Except one's inner outlook. That's all. The place is the same, the people are the same, the food is the same, everything's the same. Everything that's happening, it's the same daily schedule. And yet, one day it's marvelous, and next day it's dukkha. It's the same in our lives. One day it's really good. And although we live in the same place, Are together with the same people, do exactly the same thing, and then the next day it's all Dukkha. Why is that? It's very important to find out why. There's only one reason divided into two parts, if you like. Either we don't get what we want or we get what we don't want. There is no other reason. And whatever name we give what we want, and whatever name we give what we don't want, it makes no difference. That's what it boils down to. So if we want to protect ourselves from Dukkha. Wanting less is the best antidote. Not like society thinks getting what one wants that's no antidote because one can think of something new very quickly getting what one wants has never really satisfied anyone but wanting less that's an open secret how to have much less dukkha it's very simple all one has to do is investigate why am I not feeling as elated as I did yesterday and uh, why am I feeling so well satisfied at the moment and invariably we'll find one day we got it whatever it was that we had set out to get and the next day we didn't or we got the opposite if we actually find out about that within ourselves we can create a far more harmonious a day-to-day living and that's actually the responsibility and the duty of a meditator there aren't that many meditators in the world one hasn't really taken account yet maybe one day one will but amongst the six billion human beings that roam around on this planet meditators are in a minute minority and if those who meditate do not take it upon themselves to create a harmonious life within them and around them, they failed to take advantage of meditation. Meditation does exactly that. Whether one's going to get enlightened or not is a totally different question. First, harmony in one's daily life. And the harmony in one's daily life with the people that one lives with or that one contacts every day sees very often can only arise if there's harmony within. There's no other way. We can be as friendly and as polite as we like. The feeling of harmony is not there. When we have that inner feeling of harmony then the things that happen around us do not have such an impact even when they're not the way we want them to be. Naturally, we still know what's going on. But it isn't quite as bothersome as it used to be. Another thing that every meditator should retain from the meditation course should, yes, I I can't think of any other word (laughs) is mindfulness mindfulness in one's daily activities being totally there now some people find that easier than others those that find it easier don't have to try and arouse mindfulness all the time. A mind which is beset by sloth and torpor finds it very difficult. And a mind which is beset by restlessness finds it equally difficult. Now, we could have both hindrances and then we'd find it very, very difficult. But if we have those hindrances only to a small extent, the sloth and torpor and the restlessness, then it shouldn't be so difficult to pay attention, to pay attention to be aware of what we're doing. It's our most valuable companion on this journey through life to have mindfulness with us at all times. What does it mean? It means recognizing oneself. Not waiting for somebody else to have that recognition. When we do that, that recognition may not be all that favorable because we haven't paid attention to ourselves. But when we recognize ourselves, we also have a chance to substitute when necessary if that doesn't take place in our daily lives we're not practicing it's as simple as that we can sit on the pillow we can go to retreats but if we don't pay attention to our mind states our emotional states and substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome we haven't started the practice yet anyone who has done that to even the smallest degree knows what that means that that is real practice and it isn't always as easy as I might be making it sound quite often there's resistance in the mind and in the heart to change well we have to know the resistance too but having been able to substitute even once a certain inner strength arises knowing that one can do it having done it once having dropped anger, hate, dislike, desire, greed whatever it may be having dropped it once and having substituted with the opposite one feels quite strong and knows one can do it again it may not always work easily but then why should it? nobody has had any promises when they were born that everything was going to be easy that's um, a viewpoint a viewpoint which we soon find out has no basis in fact One does think that when one is very young but later one finds out it isn't as easy as we thought it ought to be and as pleasant as we had the uh, idea that we deserve So since that doesn't happen we can do it ourselves we can actually create harmony and peace within ourselves when we do that we create harmony and peace around ourselves if we don't create it within ourselves we have no hope of creating it around ourselves none whatsoever if there is a turbulent, raging stream that hasn't stopped how can that create a peaceful placid lake? it's got to stop first it's got to be damped and when it's damped, then we get a peaceful placid lake it's the same with us we've got to stop first mindfulness as our most valuable companion has as a priority our body actions and body movements if we have that as a priority we'll we'll have far less accidents forgetfulness can't find things don't know what to do next but on another level we have purification purification the one way for the purification of beings for the overcoming of pain, grief and lamentation for the final eradication of dukkha for entering the noble path for attaining Nibbana is mindfulness if we don't have mindfulness in our daily living our meditation practice isn't going to work and so often people come home from a retreat such as this very happy about their serenity and tranquility attainment and can never repeat it at home maybe one day first day after the retreat they're still there and then it peters off within a week and then of course they have to come to a new retreat there's nothing wrong with coming to another retreat but there's certainly something wrong with not being able to attain exactly the same states of concentration and tranquility and serenity that one has been able to do before because if they had been stabilized of course if they haven't been stabilized then it's not possible but if they had been stabilized the fault lies in the lack of mindfulness in daily living when there's mindfulness in daily living The mind stays in its place where it belongs. And it doesn't roam around the world and it doesn't roam with desires and cravings and it doesn't have any connection with hate and dislike and resentment. It just stays in its place. It's a one way for the purification of beings If we don't keep the mind pure, or as pure as possible, nothing is perfect, but at least make the attempt. In daily living, how can we expect to have a good meditation in the evening when we sit down or in the morning? Mindfulness is essential. as necessary to one's life the Buddha said as salt to the curry he said whoever has mindfulness is always happy well that's a nice promise isn't it why not try it and then maybe unhappiness arises and then one can inquire did I lose my mindfulness and invariably the answer will be yes because mindfulness means to be in this one moment, to be attentive to this one moment, to be here now, to not attend to the future and not attend to the past. Leave them where they should be. The past is invariably gone and the future is the yet to come, the Buddha said. Leave them where they should be and be here now. Not only does it do the job of purification, makes our meditation possible and facilitates it, but it also has the aspect of creating a mind state which has no time nor interest to attend to any so-called problem. problems that we have are very often self-created not entirely there are outside circumstances which might create a problem but when we see it as a problem we have created it so basically we are always creating our own problems and some of them are absurd if we looked at them from the standpoint of 100 billion galaxies or even one galaxy never mind 100 billion galaxies just one galaxy or from the standpoint of 6 billion people or from the standpoint of a child that's starving to death where's the problem? We're creating them. Why do we do that? It makes us feel really being somebody. I've got all this dukkha, so I must be somebody. I mean, who else could be there with all that dukkha? It's got to be somebody. And then, on top of that, quite a lot of people are even very much into hanging on to their dukkha because they like to hang on to being somebody people hang on to dukkha that they've had 60 years ago it's not uncommon or 40 years ago or 30 years ago and they don't even remember it they were told about it so if we look at it that way, I think we can see the absurdity of it. While there is dukkha everywhere, because nothing is totally fulfilling other than the Nibanic bliss, we do not have to suffer from that. If we see it properly, we will recognize the fact that Dukkha is there to teach us to get out of it. And when we realize that, then we're happy about it. We're happy about the possibility that we have. In our daily lives, the more happiness we can generate within, the more happiness we can help other people to have the more happiness there will be in the universe happiness is not a state of euphoria it's not a state of being elated about a certain thing those are moments of happiness Happiness is the realization that one's making one's very best effort One's very best effort in purification in compassion and love in helpfulness and in trying to see absolute truth One's making one's very best effort That kind of happiness is calm and serene and not dependent upon other people's opinions. Other people's opinions can be, if one is dependent on them, be very detrimental to one's own path. Having been to a long retreat such as this, one undoubtedly gets home with the idea, I'm going to practice all my life and I shall sit in meditation every single day of my life, at least twice a day, with very good intentions. But there is an old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. My whole life is too long because one doesn't think of one's whole life in one day and one doesn't think of one's whole life in one moment. So it's far more useful and uh, productive to think of meditating tonight and then again tomorrow morning. And tomorrow morning think to do it that night. and so on, step by step. And then, when one wakes up in the morning, make that determination. I practice today and always keep the distinction in mind between meditation and practice. Don't fall into the error of thinking that meditation is all there is to practice. People can sit for years on end and nothing happens, even if they get concentrated. If we don't practice during our daily lives, meditation has to spill over into every facet of our ordinary lives. If it doesn't do that, we're set there in vain. So when we wake up in the morning, we make up our minds. I practice today. And what do I do? I watch myself. I watch my emotions and I watch my thought content. And I will not allow the unwholesome to remain. I will always try to substitute it with the wholesome. Blaming oneself if it doesn't work. Criticizing oneself are also two unwholesome states. Compassion with oneself will do the trick. It's extremely useful to use some um, mode of loving-kindness meditation every single day. Even should it be difficult to feel, the thought process eventually brings the feeling about And there is the most important aspect of the purification of the heart, namely the knowing that our love, our ability to love, is not dependent upon a certain person. Our ability to love is dependent upon our spiritual heart, about the heart quality that we have, that's all. Longer and the more often we remember that and get that into our whole inner realization, the easier it will become. Obviously, we should meditate every day, and being experienced meditators by now, one should sit one hour in the morning, one hour at night. If one thinks that's too long, don't start with an hour and then cut off from that. Start with less and add to it. The other way doesn't work at all. Make sure that you have a group that you can go to at least once a week. The a great support system. The support system for one's own endeavors, for the practice itself. Wherever you are, there are probably groups. If there aren't, start one. Two people are a group. If you have a companion who meditates with you, so much the better. But there's one other thing. which can be extremely helpful on this path and is a necessity if one takes this path seriously. Now, some people don't. Some people just want to meditate. And the spiritual path is not the greatest priority. And on the other hand, there are some that are thinking of a spiritual path, but they do not have that inner connection to Buddha-Dhamma-Sangha. If you do, if you have gratitude for the teaching that the Buddha has provided through the Dhamma, then devotion is the next step. Only devotion is often practiced. It leads not to insight. It doesn't lead even to calm. It leads to an heart opening and can be very useful for that. It should never stand alone devotion, but neither should meditation ever stand alone. Neither should any kind of ritual stand alone. They're all aspects that, taken together, make a whole by themselves they are an extreme and when they are practiced by themselves then that extreme does not bring favorable results that applies to meditation just as much as to any of the other aspects to the study to ritual to devotion Any of these aspects, taken alone, do not provide harmony and balance. They become extreme and therefore counterproductive. Counterproductive for the simple reason that the mind thinks it's doing what it's supposed to do. This is it. I'm sitting nicely for two hours. My knees don't even hurt. That must be it. That's not it. All of these aspects of the spiritual growth need to be in conjunction with each other. The devotion, it's an opening of the heart. And if we don't have that devotion, we're missing something beautiful and we're lacking Giving up of self cherishing. Because when we have devotion, it is for something other than oneself. Obviously, we all know that our self assertion and our self cherishing and our desires and cravings for ourselves are at the bottom of every problem. Now, we can't immediately get rid of that, but we can take the necessary steps. Devotion to Buddha Dhamma Sangha means love. It also means humility, recognizing there's something greater than we are ourselves, that our petty problems and thought formations are not really the what counts. They just happen because we're a human beings. But there's something far beyond that. And the Buddha embodies the enlightenment principle which exists everywhere within us too if we see him as a great teacher who has transmitted to us the greatest of teaching, namely the Dhamma through the Sangha those disciples who became enlightened and propagated the Dhamma and if our heart Fills with gratitude for that immensely beautiful and liberating teaching. Then we need to express that in some devotional manifestation. If we take this part seriously. The devotional manifestation can be of many kinds. Everybody can have their own um, preference. But just to give an idea, have a Buddha statue in your home. Not as a decorator's piece, but as A symbol of veneration. It's just a symbol. That's all. We know it's not the real thing. But we do have photos of our parents and maybe grandparents and our loved ones. They're not the real thing either. But we do have them. They are reminders and also they bring our heart nearer to them because we can optically see them so here we have the same thing a Buddha statue to which we offer flowers make it beautiful around that statue have candles if we wish have incense if we like and which reminds us of enlightenment And of the great teaching that we should never forget. And we prostrate to that statue. Not because it's a statue, but because it depicts our commitment to the greatest good that exists in the world. That kind of feeling, kind of devotion and humility opens the heart and makes loving-kindness meditation easier it makes the uh, whole meditation process easier and it keeps us on the path now in our 20th century scientifically orientated minds devotion has taken a great backseat it's not common. Do I need that? What for? Look at these people. It looks funny what they're doing. And not only that we also in the West find it difficult to put our head on the ground in front of that what we venerate because we don't have anything in the West that we really venerate we are devoid of it. I would say that we've thrown out the baby with the bath water. We didn't like, rightly so, rites and rituals which were meaningless to us. And that's quite true. They're no good to us, and they're meaningless. But we do need devotion and veneration and respect and gratitude. When those four characteristics are absent, the mind and the heart are hard the softness of the heart comes with that kind of attitude we don't have to do any rituals if we don't like them but devotion is in the heart it's got nothing to do with rituals in fact very often rituals are being done without devotion because it's just what needs to be done at that time the flowers that we offer to the Buddha statue have the symbolism of impermanence when we offer flowers they don't last and they should remind us of the fact that we don't last either not quite as quickly but almost as quickly as the flowers are thrown on the compost heap, almost as quickly we are thrown on the compost heap. We should be reminded of that. Obviously the flower is also a symbol of beauty and the beauty that comes from our devotional heart and manifests in that gift has got two of those meanings the candles are symbolism for enlightenment light enlightenment is light in the mind it's all darkness gone and the incense is symbolic for the goodness in a person just as the beautiful aroma of the incense goes far and wide. In the same by the same token, the beautiful aroma of a totally virtuous person goes far and wide. So that's the symbolism of those three items, which are the usual thing that are used on Theravadan shrines. One can add to it as much as one likes, one can leave off what one likes. But something's got to be there to remind us. Something's got to be there to show us what is actually my priority. Is it the kitchen with its pots and pans? Or is it the bedroom with the uh, sheets and the pillowcases and the bed? Or the bathroom with the towels and the bathtub? What's my priority? Is there anything else in my house other than those totally utilitarian things which are all for the body? Every one of them. This one is for mind and heart. And it is helpful to most people to be reminded if, for instance, one has a Buddha statue, which, is, which one considers beautiful, and some of them are very beautiful, some not so, and that statue has the um, meditation posture, it may remind one that one actually wanted to go and meditate, but got sidetracked. And it may bring one back to that. If we see, if it has a beautiful face, which is serene, with a very slight smile on it, and some of them are like that, it may remind one that there is the possibility of complete liberation from all dukkha. And that the Buddha taught it. All these reminders are helpful. Let me remind one of something else. And you will find in every Buddhist country and also in every Buddhist center more than one beautiful Buddha statue. In Sri Lanka, for instance, there are Buddha statues an immense size they're actually no longer pretty because they are uh, totally out of proportion they're so huge there's one that might be almost as long as this room but what is that supposed to mean? it means the greatness of that what the Buddha taught it's uh, not to be a lifelike or anything like that it just depicts the greatness just like churches are usually aspiring high with high spires into the air why? because there's something that goes up high the same with the large size of the Buddha statues We have one in Buddha House, which is larger than life-size, but not uh, out of proportion and very beautiful with a very enigmatic smile that sometimes can be seen and other times not. And uh, the whole statue actually brings a feeling of calm and serenity to the meditation hall sitting in a meditation posture so I would like to um, suggest that it will be helpful to one's practice and to one's whole life to have such A small shrine in one's house in a corner somewhere and then some people say oh I can't do that my relatives won't like it Uh maybe they won't is that enough reason or if one of course says I'm not a Buddhist I just want to meditate or I just want to learn what the Buddha has taught that should not prevent one from having devotion gratitude respect and veneration and one can put up a shrine to all the spiritual masters that one can think of and ever had any contact with and be devoted in India I have seen many shrines in private houses where one could find either Vishnu or Shiva whichever one was the most important one that these people um, revered Jesus Christ the Buddha and then possibly one of the Swamis that they'd have contact with and they were all together on the same shrine and they all had flowers offered and candles lit and whatever else was their practice. So, our devotion and gratitude is not singular. It's a matter of the heart. And if it becomes a matter of the heart, we have a totally different stance in life what other people do and not do what other people say and not say how other people conduct themselves that remains their affair we have a level of recognition within us which goes far beyond worldly affairs naturally we still have to deal with worldly affairs. Everybody has to have car insurance and buy uh, gasoline and uh, balance that bank statement if they have any, answer the telephone. But that's only by the way. That's the kind of thing that we need to do because we have obligations if we can't lift our heart beyond that and do that daily we lose our practice we need to lift our heart beyond the world every single day it's nice to wake up in the morning and very soon Your eye can fall on a beautiful Buddha statue. You're reminded quickly. Or you can see a shrine with flowers on it and you realize this is where my heart goes. That what is our greatest treasure, that is where our heart goes. I'm quoting Teresa da Villa, who was a great mystic in Spain in the Middle Ages. And these are one is just one of her many sentences that are worthwhile remembering. Where our greatest jewel is within us, that's where our heart will attach. Now, what is our greatest jewel? We need to reflect Reflection is the same as contemplation It should be done daily Reflection What is my greatest jewel? Where does my heart go? To another person? To my desires? Or to that which goes beyond? the worldly affairs, to the greatest that one can actually experience. Noble friends are essential on this path. It's very rare. In fact, it is so rare, it's not even worth thinking about, that anybody can do it alone. we need companions on the path those whom we trust those whom we can talk to be at ease about telling our inner secrets and someone who will be able to help us on this path maybe by just talking about their own experiences or by pointing something out they have heard or seen or read. Noble friends on this path, Buddha said that a noble friend is the whole of the spiritual life. So it's important to go to a group, it's important to meet others who do the same thing it's important to have someone that we really feel at ease to talk to. We know they're not going to report our secrets and they're not going to backbite or anything of that that nature. The reality of the spiritual path goes on from morning to night. If we forget about it during the day, we're losing many valuable hours. We sleep about seven hours. And we might meditate too. That leaves us with 15 hours each day. And in those 15 hours, what's our most important thought process? Where does our mind go? Unless it goes to the things that go beyond the world, the more difficult the meditation is. If you have been able to do any of the jhanas during this course I would like to mention that if you don't do them every day you're going to lose them insight remains calm disappears so unless one practices every single day and does them again and again Every single day, one's going to lose one's ability to do them. One can get back to it in another retreat, and probably fairly quickly, but they are so valuable for everyday life. They are so valuable because we know when we do them that there is already the elevated consciousness within ourselves. And because we experience that, we also know that what we've been looking for in the world is already within us. They protect us from too much anger, and they provide sort of a cushion between our own reactions and that which confronts us. So in our daily lives they have a function of harmonizing and smoothing and because of that they of course need to be practiced every day and the mind has to be expanded, malleable, and flexible, in order to do them and if we let go of that, the mind contracts again The contracted mind is the mind that sees nothing other than oneself and one's own wishes The expanded mind can have a universal realization So our practice is important in everyday life, meditation, but our practice of devotion is extremely important and our practice of substituting the unwholesome with the wholesome. None of this is possible without paying undivided attention to oneself. Obviously, we lose it in daily living. We have to bring it back. Maybe one should make oneself a huge poster somewhere. People have posters all over the place with all sorts of things on it. Why not make a huge poster and write on it, mindfulness, or pay attention, or be now, or whatever one likes, so that one is reminded of what one wants to do. Obviously, we know what's good for us. Why don't we do it? It's quite uh, interesting that most people know very well what's good for them and yet do the opposite. It's an interesting phenomena, one that has beset mankind from its beginning and will remain with mankind. But some of us, of course, we could make a change. And that's what this is all about, making a change. I think all of you have been extremely diligent and patient and persevering. It's not so easy to do a long meditation course most of you have had very good results to be patient and persevering and diligent are wonderful qualities which the Buddha often mentioned in fact on his deathbed He said, at the very end, he said, continue to practice with diligence. What else can one do? If one doesn't go forward, one goes backward. So, the perseverance is part of one's willpower and not part of the achievement syndrome. Perseverance is just getting on with it, and keeping on with it. The Achievement Syndrome is detrimental. The perseverance is excellent. Before we do our last loving-kindness meditation together, I would like to congratulate you on having done this retreat in such a very good fashion. It's been wonderful to see the continuity and the constant um, effort that was being made. Sometimes, as I said, things went up and sometimes they went down, but that's life it always is like that so it's been a real pleasure for me to be here with you and uh, try and explain what the Buddha said in the simplest possible terms so that everyone could get an inkling of what the teaching is all about. And I do hope that I will see you again, maybe in Germany. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of the teaching that you have received as it has come from the Buddha and arouse gratitude and devotion in your heart to the highest truth. and respect and reverence. See whether these feelings can arise in your heart as you think of the teaching and the great effort that the Buddha made to pass it on so that even we they can receive it. now think of your parents whether they're still alive or not and arouse gratitude in your heart for all they have taught you devotion to them and reverence for the things you know still today that they have implanted in you Think of all the teachers you've ever had, whether it was in school, at university, on the spiritual path, wherever you've had teachers. Feel the gratitude for them. Let them know your devotion and reverence. Reach out to them. think of any person or persons who were important in your life showing you new ways explaining new ideas let them feel your gratitude and your devotion Now think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Undoubtedly, you have learned from them and through them. Express your gratitude to them. Your feeling of oneness. Your care for them let them feel it Think of all your good friends who've undoubtedly helped you on your path through life. Let gratitude and devotion, sincerity of friendship, arise in your heart. And let those feelings reach out to them letting them know how you feel. now think of other people in your life who've had an influence on you who have created new openings for you whether it is on the spiritual path or in the worldly life maybe in your workplace Think of anyone that comes to mind, that has opened new vistas, new doors, and be utterly grateful. Let that person feel your gratitude and your devotion. Think of the symbols we have in our culture of the highest spiritual attainments whatever comes to your mind statues buildings songs poems that depict the highest spiritual attainment and realize that they have influenced you even unconsciously be grateful let your gratitude devotion and reverence arise in your heart and reach out to wherever You have found those symbols. your attention back on yourself and feel how gratitude, devotion reverence and respect fill the heart with goodness how you can feel the purity of those emotions and be at ease with them and happy let them fill you surround you, embrace you and anchor them in your heart so that you have them always accessible you never need to search to find them. the merits that we have made in this meditation course with all our teachers whoever has taught us anything with our parents We share the merits with our loved ones with our friends and our enemies We share the merits with the people who run this retreat center giving us the opportunity to be here. We share the merits with Tony, who has managed this retreat single-handedly. We share the merits with Shanti, who has kept us beautifully alive. We share the merits with anyone who has helped to give us this space and time to be here at our ease and practice. We share the merits with all the devas who are present some of whom have also diligently practiced we share the merits with each other and we share them with anyone who may have benefit from them may all beings be happy may you all be very happy I now officially end this meditation course. Noble silence is lifted. And may this course bring you peace and happiness for a long time to come.